0: Have you ever done something you know you shouldn't have? That extra gloss of wine? That second takeaway of the week? That reach back to your youth for a cheeky cigarette? Human beings always seem to end up doing things that we know are bad for us. We'll even stop taking prescribed medications at the slightest sign of an adverse side effect or simple inconvenience to our usual routine. We're a strange, self-destructive bunch, but why? Where do these motivations lie? And how would you go about changing things so innate to human nature? Does science and technology have the solution? To find out, join me, Matt Millington, as we plug in to Invent Health, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, medical adherence, why don't we do what's good for us? Welcome to Invent Health, a podcast about the future of health and technology. Each week, I'll be joined by the top scientists, engineers and academics working at the vanguard of this vital industry to give you a behind-the-scenes look at the world of health tech. Plus, some of our experts at TTP will be on hand to help us explore how the tech gets made and its unbelievable real-world impact. In today's episode, we're getting inside our psyches to discover the behavioral science behind one of life's most nonsensical questions – Why do we not do what's good for us? From smoking to not finishing that course of antibiotics. Take me for example. I have asthma, yet I hardly ever take my inhaler. Happier to risk the potential problems than carry a small, easy to use device around with me. It doesn't make sense, especially when I work in health tech and should know better. At TTP, and in particular the health tech group, understanding how people behave and what makes them more or less likely to take their medication or engage with their therapy is absolutely critical to the design and development process. Why commit time and money solving a problem if the intended user is not likely to use the solution? First, let's hear from Dan Locke, who, along with being my friend and health tech teammate at TTP, is also a psychologist and human factors expert, exploring patient motivations and figuring out the design features that translate into long-term adherence to medication. So, put down that thing you're supposed to be doing and listen to this instead. So human beings don't do what they're supposed to be doing. We sometimes do what's good for us and we sometimes don't do what's good for us. This is a fairly open question, but why is that important for our healthcare?
1: So what, what we find is that the level of adherence to um, medication that you typically see ranges from around 45% to 85%. Generally, we think that are from about 80% is like a minimum for effectiveness as a rule of thumb. And so what we see there is that that can lead to some outcomes in terms of the medication not being effective, not helping the people in the way that it's designed to. For example, I know that in COPD, there are some studies that show that, you know, that non-adherence is associated with two and a half times higher mortality at three years. Wow. Yeah, I think when people are, are not adherent to their medication, there's obviously the immediate effect on on their own health. But there's also, you know, the the knock-on effects on society as well in terms of things like hospital admissions. You know, you think about it, there's a huge amount of cost to society as a result of non-adherence, which can be quite a simple thing.
0: So the the outcomes are increased death. And also I, I read recently cost the NHS around £800 million per year of people either not taking their medication at all or wasted medication. So it's a fairly kind of systemic problem when it comes to healthcare, right?
1: Yeah, and it kind of comes down to instant gratification versus deferred gratification. Are we doing something that we know is going to be grateful for having done a in the future? Or is it something that is going to benefit us right now? And when you have competing priorities, then you will often find the thing that is more immediate is the one that will win out. But those that take longer to, to kick in or to show a benefit Or maybe they don't show any benefit, but they just slow down the rate of decline. Those are the ones where you have the biggest problems.
0: I have asthma, and I'm pretty poor at taking my asthma inhaler. As a result, at a certain time of year, I used to often get a chest infection. So I get prescribed with some antibiotics. I also have a slightly weak tummy. So halfway through my antibiotics, my symptoms will have gone. So I just don't bother taking them because it makes my stomach feel a little bit uncomfortable that sort of story has massive impact on society
1: doesn't it well yeah i mean i know with um that's one of the main problems with antibiotics is if people don't complete the course then it enables antibiotic resistant strains to emerge um, over time and then they lose their effect and then nobody can use them anymore it's it's a real problem
0: yeah no it was it's you're right It was motivation for me in in my long list of priorities it wasn't high up enough up in my list to warrant me being adherent but it, it, in doing so i'm creating massive problems for the world which you know is not it's not very obvious uh when i'm just innocently not taking my inhaler
1: i think potentially you are again it's the the proximity of The consequence, you know, everyone wants the goal and it's easy to do things that feel like you're moving towards it, no real cost to you. I think this internal consistency is a big thing and self-identity and how people see themselves is a really big thing.
0: So there are are much more complicated motivators going on here beyond just logic. If I take this drug, I won't die of this disease.
1: I think that's a huge thing because there are multiple different things going on at any one time when someone's making a decision. There's the, there's the practical, logical argument, which is, you know, this is going to be good for you and that's all you really need to know. But there are other things going on at the same time. There's issues about, you know, how people see themselves and their, their identity and what that says about them. And sometimes that can be more important to people than other matters. Yeah. So it's one of the reasons why people will, you know, spend a lot of money on something that doesn't really make any sense. Like they'll buy a very expensive champagne for £200 because it says something about them Mm -hmm. but give them a blind taste test with £10 Aldi champagne and can they tell the difference really or do they enjoy it that much more? Almost certainly not, right? It's not just about the the pleasure of actually drinking the wine, it's the self-identity piece that's really playing in that scenario and that could be something that's also going on with things like smoking where, yes, you know logically it's bad for you but it's also it's more important to you to have that image of the rebel, the cowboy, or the things they used to play on in the secret adverts.
0: So it's not as not as simple as, I need to take this asthma inhaler because it'll make me feel better. It's rooted in ideas of my own identity, which, which is far more complex than just, I'm, I'm a bit of a scatterbrain.
1: Absolutely, I think. I don't think forgetting is the main reason for non adherence
0: So already, it's clear that medical non-adherence goes way, way beyond the realms of merely forgetting things. You might think you just forgot to take those antibiotics, but it can be as deep-seated as your concept of self. The idea of diligently taking and completing that course of antibiotics may actually have been at odds with your sense of self, and therefore subconsciously you're more likely to be non-adherent. As Dan explained understanding how we behave, make choices and define ourselves is critical to how we design for health services. The performance of health services and institutions around the world are at the mercy of our own behavioural idiosyncrasies. Needless to say, it is a valuable and complex issue to solve. I wanted to find out some more about the why behind all this, about the academic research which is going into understanding medical non-adherence. So I got in touch with Dr. Olga Persky, whose research is into exactly this. Olga is an interdisciplinary scientist working at the intersection of behavioural science and digital health. She's currently working on a postdoc at UCL in the Tobacco and Alcohol Research Group, and she's also an associate at the UCL Centre for Behavioural Change. Can you tell me a bit more about what you do?
2: I work as a researcher, um, a postdoctoral researcher at University College London. So I've kind of got one foot um, in the Centre for Behaviour Change. And then I also work in the UCL Tobacco and Alcohol Research Group, particular interest in using digital technologies. So websites, yeah. apps, wearables um, to deliver interventions mm-hmm. to support organization and alcohol reduction.
0: So, you know, it's naughty to smoke. I know that. I used to smoke. I gave up many years ago, but it required some fairly serious commitment and a little bit of hypnosis actually in the end why do we do these things when we know inherently that this is not necessarily very good for you why do we do it
2: yeah so so i think that there's a number of factors that kind of just actually make it very very challenging so first of all i think it is important to emphasize our biology we're obviously programmed to you know want to eat sweet and fatty foods and things like this so it's kind of actually quite natural that when things are present in our environments then we will crave those things and want those things. Mm-hmm. Most of our, you know, cities and societies are set up so kind of the environmental, you know, influences on our behavior actually make it incredibly hard to to do things that are good for us.
0: And there there are social drivers as well, as well. like the, you know, the term I'm a social smoker or I'm a social drinker implies that there's something else going on.
2: Absolutely. So yeah, different sorts of cues and social cues are obviously important. But then if we think a little bit more closely at sort of what goes on under the hood, you know, we can consider things like uh, motivation, you know, social environment that we're in obviously feeds into the beliefs beliefs that we have about what's good, uh, or what's healthy. Um, So if we're surrounded by lots of people who smoke or drink a lot of alcohol, then that will feed into our kind of Moment to moment motivation towards those behaviours as well.
0: Yeah, so there's there's the evolutionary driver of if if this stuff's around, we're pre-programmed to want it to engage with it. There's also the social driver. What about the environmental factors that make us do this?
2: When it comes to environmental influences on on behaviour, a lot of research showing that, you know, we're heavily impacted by the things surrounding us in our day-to-day lives. So, for example, if we live in close proximity to uh, to green spaces and parks, then it's more conducive to um, physical activity, for example. In cities where they're less dependent on cars, for example, that's also more conducive to uh, to physical activity, and then also it tends to be socioeconomically patterned as well. So, obviously, in neighbourhoods where less affluent people are able to afford uh, accommodation, that those areas might also be geographical regions that companies might target with shops, or um, that kind of cue different behaviours like gambling or alcohol consumption or unhealthy foods. So, it's a real real complex factor of things that Im- impacts behaviour.
0: Complex indeed. It already sounds like a web of different feelings of motivations driving this issue. So it seems we have a multidimensional balancing act happening. Good or bad behaviour, or adherent to non-adherent behaviour, is not simply about making the right choice or forgetting to do the right thing. We're motivated to behave in a certain way driven by our inherent idea of who we are and our quest to become who we want to be. Maslow refers to this concept as self-actualization, the pinnacle of his famous hierarchy of needs model. But our motivations change when they come into contact with surrounding social and environmental factors. We need to understand the interplay of these forces if we want to create more patient adherent therapies. So we're we're operating at multiple different levels here, aren't we? There's the human emotional motivation. How do you go about understanding somebody's motivation to use an asthma inhaler or an EpiPen or a, whatever it is?
1: To understand motivation, I think it's, it's been studied for a long time. People have been trying to understand behaviour, obviously, for millennia. But I guess in terms of psychology, the first person to really look at behaviour was Skinner. Who's one of the biggest sort of names in, in psychology after Freud. Mm. And in the 30s, he published a book about behaviourism that was very much taking the human as a black box that he didn't really care about too much. He was more interested in looking at the inputs and looking at the outputs. And it was his focus was all on conditioning and reinforcement and external factors. So like Pavlov's dog, you ring a bell, the dog salivates because it associates it with dinner time. Mm-hmm. He sees... Behaviour in a similar way to that, in the sense that if you punish someone for doing something, they won't, they're less likely to do it in future. If you reward something for someone for doing something, they're more likely to do it in future. And that's still a view held by a lot of people, and especially in things like education and, and things like that, where it can be quite prevalent. There are people out there that are trying to use similar strategies now to create better adherence in terms of punishing and rewarding people for their poor adherence by you know, giving them free vouchers if they take their medication it doesn't really work in the long term. It doesn't change hearts and minds. It's it's something that only works as long as it's um, in place.
0: So the the motivations are more complex than just logic. I guess we're getting into the world of, you know, we don't need to do things because it's going to keep us alive. But if we don't do it, it might say something about ourselves that we, for whatever reason, deem to be of more value than the risk that goes along with not taking the medication, for example.
1: I mean, there's a lot of really interesting work that came out after the war where they were trying to understand why people went along with with the Nazis, for example. Why were they obedient to that authority when they knew that they were doing the wrong thing? Mm. And all those kind of Zimbardo imprisoned experiments. There's a really famous one where, I think it was Solomon Ash did a study where he got a group of five people in a room. The first four people were all kind of in on it. The last person was the real experiment subject. And the study was showing people, you know, a length of tube and asking them to compare with another one and say, which one is longer? And then after a certain amount of time, he would get everyone to say something. One was longer when it clearly wasn't, but everyone would say it. And then eight out of ten times, the guy who was last in the, in the crowd, who was the actual experimenter, would go along with what everyone said, even though he could see with his own eyes that wow. that wasn't the case. And, and it's like kind of stuff like that where you realize, you know, there's a lot of sort of um, there's a social element to to how people behave. It's not just driven by logic. It's about how they see themselves, how they want others to see them.
0: I wanted to break down this idea of motivation even further and to take it out of the realm of academia and into the commercial world to find out what methodologies and techniques are being used to create products that patients actually want to use. So I called up Paul Upham. Paul is head of smart devices at Roche Genentech in San Francisco and has over 20 years of experience in medical technology and digital health R&D. Including leading the development of the world's first prescription digital therapy for type two diabetes, Blue Star from WellDoc. What are the what are the drivers or at least the blockers to adherence that you you come across on a regular basis? Yeah, when you
3: when you look across multiple conditions, some studies have shown that forgetting might be about twenty percent of the explanation. One way to think about what forgetting is, is that it's unintentional non-adherence. I forgot. There's a bunch of intentional, including things like, I don't believe the drug will help me. I don't trust my doctor is sometimes intermixed with that. I'm persistent, but I'm not adherent. And then there's there's a couple of other unintentional types that we see and those are often financial or logistics so when you stack all of those reasons up and and you often find a mix of them in every single person that drives you to that average of 50 percent non-adherence i mean that is that is a startling figure what piqued my interest slightly
0: was your description of i forgot as Unintentional. Whereas I feel like there are also gray areas within the whole I forgot statement. There's an element of I forgot because I didn't prioritize it enough to bother to remember.
3: Right. It may be that the studies that sort of report forgetting uh, really can unpack what forgetting means into things like you describe, where I don't have the appropriate motivation to remember. And I think that is not necessarily the patient's responsibility. I think that is the healthcare system player's responsibility. Most people, with few exceptions, want to be healthy, want to feel better, and want to live. So, Paul, can you you tell me what
0: kind of techniques uh, and methodology you're using to able to get closer
3: to understanding the motivations of of patients to be able to help them be more adherent an example where a team was at the very early stages of an interest in improving persistence on therapy so this was a a therapy for a very severe respiratory illness a, a deadly respiratory illness the therapy had significant gastrointestinal side effects you know imagine the worst ones but the, the drug added five to seven years to your projected lifespan from this condition. So huge benefit. But they had this persistence problem and, and they didn't understand exactly why that was. And so they commissioned our behavior design team to help understand this problem and ultimately design a solution for it. We realized we needed to ha- have a conversation and observational session in the patient's homes. Mm. And what they were looking for were some of those same traditional endpoints of an ethnographic study, but they were also looking to understand what are the natural behaviors of patients in their home environments? What are the natural behaviors associated with The management of their condition. And so we sent the team in and gathered all sorts of interesting insights. We're interviewing patients, and we detected one behavior that we saw across, I don't know, maybe 70% of the patients whose homes we were in, where they were using a fingertip pulse oximeter. What they were using it for was if they started to feel out of breath they would attach the pulse oximeter and measure their blood oxygen level and then they would do a breathing exercise or a meditation in order to try and get try and calm themselves down and very frequently they told us they would see an improvement in their blood oxygen level So it was this fascinating insight that was completely unexpected, but it was about the only aspect of their health that they could control. And it helped them measurably feel better, even just a little bit, which nothing else about their condition or their treatment did. This became our technique for unlocking How do we battle the brain's inability to look at that longer-term future value and want immediate rewards and be much more satisfied with immediate rewards? And so it was essentially a hack to their own environment that we realized could be quite relevant and useful for many, many other people. This is why I still firmly believe that Well, traditional ethnography or at
0: least first-hand observation gives you deeper insights that you wouldn't be able to get from monitoring. So being able to find those small things that make us feel like we're actually improving is very motivating. Mm -hmm. That story from Paul really shows how unexpected reasons for non-adherent behavior can be. Data and remote monitoring is incredibly powerful, but sometimes you need to see people's behavior firsthand in the real world to get the full picture and come up with the right solution. So now we understand the impact on society of non-adherence, and most of all, we understand the concept of motivation. But more important than the why, for patients at least, has to be the solution. What can we do about it? And can technology offer a solution to our human behavioral inconsistencies? What can health tech do to change problems which are seemingly in our head? Olga has been working on some cutting-edge technologies which seek to do just that. Do you think digital technology offers uh, an opportunity to tackle addiction health more than, more than previously?
2: Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a complex matter as well, uh, like everything. So I think when we're looking at kind of what, works for you know smoking cessation or alcohol reduction I think that th- we should probably pay attention to where they can play a really important role so obviously when we think about the effectiveness of any intervention we need to think both about the magnitude of of that intervention its effect uh, but then also the uptake and um, so is there a way that we can design something via technology.
0: So technology is powerful in that it offers scalability, enables us to reach more people, which is why it's interesting. I'm interested in how you actually reach people though, using technology. What ways are you going to use technology to be able to address something like excessive alcohol intake?
2: Yeah, so I think th- when designing these interventions, we do need to kind of think carefully about what Ingredients or what components we put into these interventions. And I think we're probably seeing a lot of different apps being launched on the market, uh, which may not necessarily have been designed with um, researchers or clinicians or users involved in their design. And when we're thinking about effective techniques, it's often very useful to kind of make sure that we take a systematic approach. So, to give you an example, We have some interesting work going on where we've designed a sort of quick response chatbot. We've conducted um, some experimental work. In one study, we were able to randomise over 57,000 smokers from different countries and we were able to look at some indicators of user engagement and then also short-term smoking cessation success. We found some quite interesting results. So user engagement more than doubled in the in in the group that um, received the chatbots, and then we also saw that that led to um, increases in quit success at one month. And I think what what's coming out of this is that even though people know that it's completely automated and it's a bot, even though it's got a bit of personality and uh, a bit of humour, uh, it's not a human being. But people are still feeling like they form some sort of a bond with this virtual character and that it can help to sort of boost motivation. And interestingly as well, that people kind of feel like they don't really want to disappoint the bots. They don't want to come back and sort of have to report that they smoked a cigarette or, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean, what one thing about digital technology and reminders is it's very, very easy to switch off. But I, I feel like with a chat bot, when you've got that added personality, it's just, it, it's another reason to engage a little bit more deeply. Have you experimented with customizing tone of voice and things based on the type of uh, type of user?
2: So that yeah, I agree this is a it's a very interesting approach for kind of taking something that is typically boring and making it more fun. Another thing that is quite interesting about sort of where things are probably going more and more is to be able to personalize a bit more on on the basis of the individual's responses. So ultimately, I think now we're at the phase where we need to think very carefully about how can we leverage all of this to actually sort of deliver on the promise of health technologies by making them actually useful and usable for people rather than sort of something that is just annoying. I think it's interesting as well that a lot of it has probably grown out of behavioural areas where people typically think it's fun to track things being able to visualise one's performance might then provide even more motivation to sort of beat one's record or sustain a particular pattern of exercise. People have tried to gamify smoking cessation and probably to, to a lesser degree alcohol reduction. And I think that for, for smoking, for example, it might actually, there might be other ways in which we can gamify the process.
0: Those terms gamify and gamification always set off my buzzword bingo alarm. They're words which seem to echo the halls or open-plan loft spaces of digital product design studios the world over. But don't let the buzz spoil the opportunity gamification presents for healthcare. Creating something fun or competitive has many real-world use cases in terms of health and in particular driving patient engagement. But is it the sugar coating on the digital pill? Or is it more powerful than that? I wanted to dig into this a little further, so I asked Dan to break down the concepts for me.
1: Gamification, it's something that's associated with our dopamine response and the components that make up of, of, of a mastery kind of driven experience are, you know, your just manageable challenges, so not too easy. Not too difficult that it puts you off, but just manageable within your current level of skill. So a really nice learning curve is really important. And when you find a hobby or something that has the right learning curve for you, because obviously everyone learns at different rates, that tends to be the one that you're going to enjoy and, and and kind of progress with. Clear proximal goals is another one. Not every task is is gamifiable they tend to be something that you do again and again and again there's a certain level of skill involved not too much not too little and there's a clear way of measuring it and feeding back that you've done it correctly
0: so this is playing on that mechanism using mastery to get people to engage in something over time which eventually builds that sort of inherent behavior
1: yeah, I think I think so, and and it asks some questions about you know the design of medication regimes as well. What if we designed it, something from the regime backwards rather than from the drug? How would we design it? Would it, would it, how different would it look? Would we say actually you know taking a pill every day, it's really really easy, but it's boring, and is there's no skill? You're not mastering anything. So if there was another way to deliver the medication that took a bit more effort but was maybe a bit more interesting. Would that be better? Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. Maybe it would be too much effort, and people get bored of it eventually.
0: You know, I've I've seen it used gamification very explicitly used on they've essentially designing video games that have a therapeutic effect. Have you seen any any good ones like that?
1: I mean, there's a very well known local one to us, um, a company called Play Physio that has designed a series of games for people with cystic fibrosis. So that is the perfect candidate for gamification in the sense that it's a very boring task you have to do 100 breaths or something every day in a very controlled way at the right rate not too fast not too slow and they've taken that and they've turned it into a series of video games for children where every breath if it's the right level controls whatever the action is in the video game and i think you know that has managed to transform some some families lives and taken a you know experience which is very stressful for everyone but this has made it to a an activity that most other kids are jealous of, you know, that they want to do it too. I think that's been really good.
0: Gamification, if used correctly, is a great tool for product teams who need to elicit regular engagement from their user base. As we've learned, the concept of mastery, or investing time in developing a skill, actually builds engagement. It also helps flip the context of treating a condition into something that feels more positive. So what's next? Will we use our understanding of behavioural psychology to make things even more personalised to the individual? Tech that learns who we are, what we like and tailors itself to our individual needs and even moods. I asked Paul about the future of health tech, personalization, and whether the constant reminders and notifications that many digital solutions are built around are here to stay. Can you tell me a little bit about how you, how you feel about technology's role in, in reminding people whether it works or not?
3: I think it can work, but you, you first have to know, and this is part of the power of digital, um, is the ability to know, is the person somebody who's got a problem with forgetting? Is that at the root of their adherence challenges? And then if the answer to that is yes... Then you want to bring the person to activating some sort of reminder system and then have it understand the person's therapy regimen and lifestyle, make it contextual, You know, use the smartphone's capabilities so it's not just a crude, persistent type of thing. So let's build those first and, and gather some data and see how it's working for them. Regardless of how somebody feels about Amazon, they are becoming, if not already, one of the world's largest pharmacies and have an ability to get things to people's homes <laughs> better than most.
0: They have devices in your home as well that are particularly useful.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I, think they're, I think we still are not paying enough attention to what Amazon might disrupt next for any of us in that healthcare ecosystem value chain. It's interesting. I, I'm a I'm an Alexa user, but it's so funny when I look at the history of interactions in their app, you can see what questions were eighty percent of the time it's asking what the weather or weather, weather is right now or the forecast. Yeah. And twenty percent of the time it's cooking timers. Right. And then yeah, you know, every once in a while a fart joke. Yeah. <laughs>
0: the kids have got hold of it. <laughs> right. But I uh, I think that's You know, there there is a big problem um, that I think that is potentially the solution. How do you cut through the noise? Because, you know, if you have a chronic disease, it's pretty important. But we've already established that we're not fully rational. How do we cut through? Because it's only going to become more and more noisy and digital in our lives.
3: Yeah, it's a great question and an important one. Actually, the, the first question for any particular brand or any particular therapeutic area team is to look in a given market that matters to them and say, does anyone own the digital relationship between a doctor and a patient already? And if so, who is that? And how could we partner with them and with the end objective being, let's not, let's not insert ourselves in between the doctor and the patient. And then if you ask that question of a particular patient population in a particular market and you find there's nobody offering anything, then there's an opportunity to say, okay, how could we put together the right ecosystem that could support patients who have this disease because then what the patient is getting at the end of that of a project like that is something that addresses all those different areas it addresses sort of core motivations about medication taking but it it is part of an ecosystem that addresses the financial barriers it's part of an ecosystem that addresses the logistical barriers and it's one that allows the patient to have a better connection with their healthcare team. And, and it's those integrated solutions that are all sort of sharing the data appropriately you know, with whichever parties in that ecosystem should have it for the benefit of the patient. Creating more integrated experiences
0: is the holy grail for digital health solutions, and physical for that matter. By putting the patient front and centre, we're able to personalise solutions and deliver reminders in ways that don't cause annoyance or present unnecessary burden, but are not so seamless and embedded that they're ignored or forgotten.
2: My particular area that I'm very excited about is the ability to, to better understand individuals and how they change over time and their circumstances change over time and how we can use that information to really tailor the support that we're providing to people.
0: And what will that personalisation do? It will empower people to be healthy, to want to do what they know they should, and to eventually actually do what's good for them. So personalisation is a powerful tool, and understanding motivations to adhere or not is paramount. You can't make someone do something. Or at least not for a sustained period of time you have to engage people as individuals on their terms finding and leveraging their own personal motivations to promote more positive and healthier behaviors
1: it's about trying to give people back their autonomy and decision making you know treating them respect and making sure that they're fully aware of all the things that are going on in their lives that they they value
0: that's all we got time for today Thanks so much for listening and to all our guests, Dan, Olga and Paul, for demystifying the idea behind our self-destructive tendencies. We'll be back next week where we'll be looking into mental health to see whether it's the wellness industry or groundbreaking new health technology that will provide the solution to the mental health crisis. We'll see you then. Invent Health is a podcast from TTP. It's hosted by me, Matt Millington. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm also a strategic design consultant at TTP. It was written and produced by Harry Stott. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.